when I started reading the questions that you were asking about uh, having a sermon connected to, uh, I started getting nervous right away as I was reading through them. Some of that nerves, nervousness was because the questions are very controversial. And uh, we'll be getting to more of those in the next weeks and months. Some of them were made me nervous because, quite frankly, they're outside the realm of knowing. You know, there are, there are questions that we ask that we surmise, we, we take our best guess, we use the scriptures to figure out the best answer we can, but sometimes we just don't know. And quite frankly, one of the questions about which we have, we have not as much certainty as we would want, at least in parts of it, is this question about heaven. Now, there are things about heaven that we can be certain about, but there are other things about it that we have to take Scripture, put it together the best that we can, and say, this seems to be what it's like. And it's one of those, one of those uh, questions we're dealing with today. Now, there are, I would say this, the majority of people in the world believe in something after death. It might be reincarnation. It might be nirvana. It might be a variety of ideas about it. But most people in the world, at least the greater majority of people, if polls tell us anything, believe that there is something that happens after we die. We as Christians believe that heaven is a part of our eternal existence. And we believe that. I've been asking myself, why is it that we believe in heaven? Why is heaven, in a sense, taken for granted as a part of our understanding of our faith? And there are a number of things, I think, that move us toward that. One of the reasons, at least, that reinforces our perspective of heaven are the stories that we hear from people who have these experiences that are either near death or death and back to life. How many of you have had the opportunity to read or watch the movie, Heaven is for Real? Okay, fair number of you. One of those stories. Sometimes we read these stories and we think, oh, I don't know, you could manipulate that. This doesn't seem like there's an agenda behind it. It's a little boy who had an experience in a surgery. And they thought he was dead and he's come back now and he's telling them stories about what he saw. Now, whether he saw heaven or something else as a part of some type of intermediary existence, who knows. But he certainly saw something that was after death. There is also something in us generally, which is one of the reasons why I think society at large and culture at large believes in something after death. Something in us, we're created with a yearning for something more. You know, it was, it was Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who said, you know, if I, find, if I find that I have a desire, a yearning in my spirit that no experiences in this world can, can answer, then the most probable answer is that I was made for another world. And there is this created yearning in us that we believe our life on this earth, as precious as it is, and because it is so precious, can't be all there is. That God creates us so intricately and with so much beauty and creativity that when we die, surely we go on in some form. It's built into the universe. And a sense of, of incompleteness in this world. 
that there are many things that simply don't get finished in the life that we live here. There are so many things that, that don't get settled in the world here that we, we believe that if there is, if God is good as he says he is, then someday there will be a vindication of what is not yet completed. But ultimately, we believe in heaven quite simply because Jesus says so. I mean, it's basic. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, and this is a sampling of the many times he and others talk about heaven, is that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. Trust me. And this is the foundation for our belief in heaven. That Jesus has promised us that there is an eternity for us. Now the question is, what does, you know, then the question is, what is that existence? What does that look like? What is that going to be? And most of us have a, have a view of heaven, at least, unless we really process it a lot. Most of our pictures of heaven tend to be clouds and angels and wings and, you know, those kinds of things. It, it's somewhere in the sky that I, it seems like the existence just, we just sort of float around. Right? I mean... And, and quite frankly, it's, you know, it's different than, you know, we might want. There's no concreteness to it. But that, I suspect that's because we tend, to, we tend to give in to a very dualistic kind of mindset that says matter's evil, spirit's good. And one of the things we think about heaven is that we're escaping the evil of this world and we get to a place that doesn't have that anymore. And we equate mater- the material world with evil. And that's a mistake. Even back in Isaiah, God talks about a new heaven and a new earth that he's creating. And John says in this revelation, Behold, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I think the word new is not that he is trashing what's here and starting all over, but rather it's a restoration. He's redeeming what has been broken by sin here. And what we will experience in heaven, I think, is a very concrete life. I think that that will mean that what we do will be similar and dissimilar to what we do now. We will create. Because creating is a part of the nature of God. God loves to create. He doesn't create because it seemed like a good idea at the time. He creates because he loves to create. It's part of his nature and it's part of what he's embedded in us as people created in his image. And there is great joy in creating. We love to create. We love love the satisfaction of making something and completing something. And create, we will create and we will work. I used to think work was was a part of the fall, you know, part of the curse, right? I mean, oh man, we have to work. You know, and I think in the back of our minds, we have this mindset of we're just going to be kind of lying on a beach somewhere and people taking care of us and tending to our needs. That's what heaven's going to be. We're going to work. Adam and Eve worked. They tilled the soil. They planted. They, they reaped long before the curse came along. Because there's great joy in work. Now, the difference is work will not exhaust us like it does now. And I think that's probably because we will practice Sabbath the way we're supposed to as we talked last week. And we will, we will be people who know how to, we will obey the rules of Sabbath 
And so therefore work will not exhaust us. It will actually help restore us. It will be fulfilling for us. And the other difference is now work is something that we often use to gain either to gain wealth for ourselves or we use it to gain value for ourselves. I suspect that those are the reasons why most people become workaholics. We are workaholics because we can earn more. We can have more stuff. Or we're workaholics because people, people say to us, wow, you're so successful. You do such a great job. You're so important. And it just feeds on that need for self-esteem and self-worth that we get from other people. And the more people say, the more we work. And we get into the cycle. And in heaven, work won't be something we do in order to get more for ourselves. It will be an offer of worship to God. And work in heaven will not bring value and worth to us. We will have value and worth simply because we are God's beloved creation. And we will understand that in a way that's difficult for us to understand now. I think we will do things. I think that, that it will... I think that it will also mean that we will have bodies that are similar and dissimilar to what we have now. I suspect, and I'm guessing, maybe we'll have bodies that were like Jesus' resurrected body. Where he was recognizable, see him. In fact, he said to Thomas, come over, don't just look at the nail prints in my hands, my side. Put your hand in there, touch it, feel it. He had a body that had substance to it. But at the same time, he could walk right through a door. And he could move from place to place in milliseconds. So similar and dissimilar. And I suspect that maybe our bodies will be the same. I think one of the key things to understand is that the barriers between us and God that we live with now will be removed. For whatever reason. One of the children, one of the questions that one of the children asked. It was about Uh, Clayton Templeton, who has Down syndrome. One of the questions was, what will Clayton be like in heaven? I I thought it was just a beautiful question. And I think, I think that all the barriers that Clayton now lives with will be removed. He'll be able to talk. He'll be able to understand things that he can't understand now. He will be able to, to do things that he's unable to do now. And that doesn't lessen his value of a, as a person now because the truth is we all have barriers between us and God. We all have things in our lives that, that keep us from experiencing the fullness of God. They might be physical issues, might be mental issues, emotional issues. The pain and the hurt of life that we cause each other the struggles of living in a sinful, fallen world, all of those barriers to knowing God fully will be removed. And we will will celebrate in his presence. Isn't it fascinating that when we think about heaven and the scriptures talk about the kingdom of God, one one of the repeated metaphors is the wedding supper. A wedding feast. And John says in Revelation 19 that he saw a wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he talks here about the, the understanding that, that we will be in this place of celebrating 
like a wedding. I mean, there's nothing more, there's no bigger celebration than a wedding. Sometimes I think in our heritage, we have, we've become so serious about stuff that we have, I'm going to make up a word, we have somberized things. You'll see that one in, the, in a dictionary somewhere in the next few months, I'm sure. You know, we, we've, we've equated seriousness with somberness. And, and it's not. We should be serious about God and our faith, but not somber about it. Jesus has to be the most serious person that ever lived. He took his mission so seriously that he goes to the cross and yet he, was, he exuded joy. Why else would all the children flock to him and all the people gather around him? He was filled with joy. And, and that's what weddings are supposed to be. Places of joy and excitement and celebration. And heaven will be that to infinity. And you think about a wedding. And a wedding is, is the joining together of two families into one. I love talking with couples in premarital counseling about how they each need to understand that they are bringing together two views of normal that are not always the same into one home that's going to create a new vision of normal. One of the ways that I talk about that is how you open Christmas gifts. You know, in some families, everyone's sitting around the room with the tree and the presents, and you, some first person takes a present. They open it up and they look at it. And if it's closed, they may try on the sweater or show everybody their ring. And everyone's, let me see, you know. If it's a toy, you get it out and play with it. It may, it may take five minutes or more just with one gift. And then you go to the next person. And they do the same thing. And it drives children nuts, you know. They want to do it now. So then you have the opposite side of it, families, where everybody's in the circle. And all your gifts are stacked in front of you. And they yell, go. And paper and ribbons and bows are flying everywhere. And when everybody gets done opening things, you say, whoa, what'd you get? What'd you get? Ooh, cool, you know. And then you look at everything. And I have had so many couples come together and we talk about Christmas and they're looking at each other like, that's not normal. This is normal. No, that's not normal. This is normal. We're bringing together these two things. And I think in heaven, there's this wedding feast. It's the joining together of all the things that make us different into something that we, we join together to new a new normal. And it's not that we are this melting pot of people and we all look the same. I think we'll retain a lot of our uniqueness. Look at what John sees in Revelation 7, 9. I've been fascinated by this passage for a long time. He says, I looked and there before me was this multitude no one could count. And in this multitude were people of every nation, tribe, people, and language. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing about this passage, says, I'm convinced that there will be nationalities in heaven. When we get to heaven, there will be Nigerians and Koreans, Colombians, Australians, Italians, Chinese, Vietnamese. There will be Germans. There will be New Zealanders. There will be Canadians. There'll be a few Americans, hopefully. (laughs) Probably less than we think. And we will, and instead of our differences and our nationalities dividing us like they do now, they will inspire us. It will make heaven so much more joyous. And it will bring 
life. And it will bring nuances to worshiping God than if we're just all the same. I think this variety, because God creates with variety. It's part of the genius of his creation, of human beings and the whole world. Just think of how many flowers, different kinds of flowers God has created. And there will be this this sense of, of our variety creating a new normal of getting along with each other. Now, our nationalistic differences create wars. We, we see each other in a way, how can I use them to get more money in my pocket, to feel a better sense of security. We even think in terms of nationalized, our nationalities of enslaving people, taking advantage of people. But in heaven, it will be a simply a sense of taking all of our differences and uniting ourselves together in worship. Maybe that's why the scriptures talk so much about unity. Because what we're doing now is setting the stage for what we're going to do then. And the difference is instead of dividing us, we unite us. As people who celebrate the greatness of God. And in that place, there will be, we will be rewarded for what we've done as sacrifice for the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil against you, because great is your reward in heaven. Now that feels a little bit mercenary. To say, I'll take the sacrifice because I'm going to get something from it. It's not mercenary. It's just a promise of God. And N.T. Wright says that you have to think of it not in terms of, like, it's a job I do and I'm going to get paid. And we only do the job because we're going to get paid. And let's be honest, there are days when we only do our job because we're going to get a paycheck. And if we don't do it, we won't get the paycheck. But it's more a sense of sacrificing because we are developing a relationship in a marriage or a friendship. That we, we give of ourselves, we sacrifice our time and our energy and our resources because we want to know this person even more. And because doing so makes our relationship stronger and we enjoy each other so much more. Or he says it's like going out and practicing hitting golf balls so that when you get on the course, you can hit the ball relatively straight. Or perhaps learning Greek so that you can go back and read some of the ancient poets in their own language and getting all the nuances of that language that you just don't get in a translation. It's engaging ourselves to grow, to learn, to enjoy. It's not mercenary. Because the truth of the matter is, heaven is about people who want what God wants. And we're simply experiencing the desires of our hearts for God. That speaks to me about the question that we often ask, who goes to heaven? Or we sometimes word it, who gets in? And the opposite, who doesn't? We'll talk about that a little more next week. The minute we ask the question, who gets in? Most of the time, our answer has something to do with a formula. And we love formulas, right? All I have to do is give me a formula, then I don't have to think about it. 
It's like one guy said, I can't, you know, heaven's going to be great because when we get there, everybody in heaven will have passed God's entrance requirements. I heard that. I read that. I thought, what does even that even mean? Does everybody know the secret handshake? So you get in or you know the right code to push on the keypad at the pearly gates so that they'll open up? You know, you, you, what does that mean? I think most of the time when we use that kind of language, we mean you've understood the code words. You've said the prayer. You've, you've said the right words that will then get you in. And what it does is it creates a mindset of how little can I do and still sneak in versus how can I devote my life to Christ? And while the prayers are important and the words are important and they have value because we all need to confess, we all need to repent, we all need to acknowledge our need for God, but ultimately, heaven is not about people who just want to sneak in like it's eternal fire insurance. It's about people who want what God wants. It's about living a life that is fully committed and trusting of God. And are we perfect about it? No, but that's the desire, the passion of our hearts. That God's desires become ours and God's passion becomes ours. That his dreams and desires become ours. That what God wants is what we want. And that's really what we're talking about when we, when we throw around the words holiness and sanctification and those kinds of words that are code words for all kinds of things. If you boil them down, that's what it means. It means living a life that is devoted to Christ. Dennis Kinlaw says that when you, when you read the Gospels, you really find very few times when Jesus tells his disciples to believe in him. What he really says most of the time is, follow me. And there's a big difference. Granted, what we believe leads to our actions, and we need to believe. But ultimately, being a follower of Jesus is about committing ourselves to him. It's not so much about words, a word, as it is life. One of the most frightening things that Jesus says is in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, and not be admitted into the kingdom. They say the right words, but their heart isn't in it. It's about our life. What's important to us? What are our priorities Who is Christ to us? And that then ultimately means that if we are committed to a life of following Christ and of trusting him, then we get the privilege of being agents of God to help bring about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We become actually people who are part of answering the prayer we prayed a few moments ago. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What a great joy and privilege that is. Because it's following Jesus is not just about what we are going to experience someday, as awesome as that is. It's about now. It's about being agents and witnesses for God now. And N.T. Wright says you can summarize the calling on us related to heaven with three things. It says beauty, 
We're committed to people who, we are people who are committed to, to the beauty of God's creation, which means that we steward God's creation as we're commanded. We care about what God has made. It's important to us because it's important to God. And we're talking about people and all that God has made. And, and we do things to help enhance and understand and develop all the beautiful things that God has created. That's why, as we talked last week, science can be so helpful to us. Because they just keep expanding, it just keeps expanding our horizons about the vastness and the intricacies of God's creation. It's the value of art in our world to help open our eyes to see things and to see the beauty and the majesty of God. And we're committed to justice. We are voices for the voiceless. We are advocates for people who, have, who are vulnerable and have no advocacy. I'm continually amazed at how many times God says to Israel, it's your responsibility to take care of the aliens and the strangers and the widows and the orphans and the poor among you. And if you don't, you're going to have to answer to me. Jesus picks up that same idea in Matthew 25 where he's talking about heaven and he's talking about dividing people to sheep and the goats. And in this instance, he says the difference. How did you treat the people who were thirsty and hungry and naked and poor and in prison? And the reason the people who treated them the right way with water and food and compassion and action, is the reason they're, they're rewarded and the reason they're highlighted as what God wants is because that's how God treats them. That's how God treats us. With forgiveness and compassion and grace. Because we're not deserving. We're in just as bad a shape as everybody else is. But we have come far enough that we can actually be agents of justice and voices of justice and people who take stands for justice because God cares about justice. And we also are committed to evangelism. We often think of evangelism as getting people into heaven. We're back to the formula again. You know, when you stand before God, why would he let you into heaven? That's one of the questions, you know, one of the uh, evangelism programs. And I just think that's the wrong question to ask. I think that's the wrong thing that we're trying to do. As much as we want people to go to heaven, evangelism is not about can we get people into heaven. It's about can we help people experience the transforming power of God in their lives right now. We want people who are living in bondage to be set free by Christ. People who are lost to know that God loves them and wants to transform them. And yes, we want them to go to heaven. And that's ultimately where we hope people end up and we want them to end up there. But it's not just about that. It's about now. Because God is at work now. The kingdom is already at work in this place now, in the world now. And in heaven, it's like a Venn diagram, you know, where there is overlap now. And in heaven, it will be, they will perfectly line up. 
And our role as followers of Jesus is to continue to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. Kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And to witness to that. And to live lives that cause people to, to want to know about that. And to accept Christ. And to see what he offers them. And we do that now. With eternal results then. Ultimately, what we're trying to help people understand both now and then is that heaven is only heaven because God is there. That's what makes it heaven. We could describe all these great things that we think heaven will be, but if God is not there, it's not heaven. And that's why it's a place for people who want what God wants because it is all about God. It is about God and his kingdom. It is about God and his rule. It is about God and his authority. It is about God and who he is and his nature and character. And everything, the glimpses we get of God now, because of our, the barriers of our lives, we will experience them fully when we get to heaven. His love that sometimes has difficulty getting through to us, we'll experience it fully in heaven. His truth that sometimes doesn't make sense to us, we'll understand it perfectly in heaven. It will be the fulfillment of all that God is in his otherness. We'll experience it there. No wonder it's a place of joy and love. And something that we ought to get more and more excited about all the time. Because ultimately, as we go through our lives now, that's our ultimate hope. We need to live with hope. We can live without a whole lot of things in this world, but the one thing we cannot live without is hope. The minute hope disappears from our lives, we're in big trouble. And the scriptures keep telling us our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the resurrected Christ. And yes, death is our enemy. But because Christ is risen, Paul says, death is a defeated enemy. And that's our hope. That's our joy. And that's the fullness of God with us. And you know, sometimes we get a lot of our theology about heaven from hymns gospel songs. Sometimes they're not always maybe the best theology in the world. And, you know, I've heard people quote things that say it's in the Bible, and I I don't say anything usually, but I want to say, no, it's not in the Bible. That's on page 498 of our hymnal. (laughs) But, you know, when you really look at them, it's people trying to describe the indescribable. It's people trying to express what's in their hearts. And so when we, when we sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. It's, a, it's one hymn writer's attempt to say, it is going to be awesome. And when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there, is one hymn writer's attempt to say, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to, I don't want to not be a part of that. And then I think about what Fanny Crosby wrote. You know, Fanny Crosby, who was 
blind, struck with blindness at a very young age and virtually was blind her entire life. Wrote a hymn about heaven. I don't think it's in our hymnal. We don't sing it a lot much anymore, but it, it expresses just the inexpressible. And she writes these words. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when that bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his lovely face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise him for his mercy, love, and grace that prepares for me a mansion in the sky. Maybe not perfect theology, but you can sense the depths of the hope of her eternal reward, of the hope that is ours in Christ. And my question for us this morning is, first of all, are we living in that hope? Are we living in that hope of Christ who wants to transform us now because of what he's promised us then? And what are we doing about being agents of hope to this world, to our neighbors, our co-workers, people we run in, come in contact with, wherever God leads us, about bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for the promise that is ours through Christ, our risen King. Give us a new vision of what you have promised us. And let that vision change how we live today and tomorrow and this week and the months and years to come. Both for our own faith and the faith of others. Amen.